You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down, or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart, and I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Hello, I'm Drew Hart, and we really have a fantastic episode uh, for you, and it's featuring Nobel Peace Prize nominee John Deere, as well as pastor and author Brian Zanz. And we believe that it's going to be especially helpful helpful for those who are trying to figure out what it means to have integrity and to be faithful in the face of uh, social injustice and oppression. But before we hear from them, here's an excerpt from a recent Black Lives Matter protest that Jared was involved in over in Australia, where he interviewed veteran Aboriginal land rights activist Auntie Esther Montgomery. And we also want to give a special thanks to our friends and filmmaker Chad Peacock for making this little film found on our YouTube page that the audio accompanies. It's a powerful three minutes But we do want to offer a warning for those who have little ears listening in. Um, Auntie Esther does use some racist terms that she's been called personally. And so you might want to skip ahead if that is triggering for you. Or again, if you have little kids listening in. Again, thanks for all you do and witness to a better world. Peace. Really, they will have to look at their own family history and the, and the part that their family have played in the development of Australia. And I go back to a lot of the stations. A lot of the stations had Aboriginal women working. They were cooking for white families. They brought the children up. They did that on the North Shore of Sydney, not just here in Western Australia in the station. So there was that whole slavery. There was that slavery where Aboriginal people got paid in flour, salt and tobacco. My grandmother was one. You know, my great-grandparents were part of the Pilbara strike, probably the biggest union event ever by Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people working together for better outcomes for my people in the Pilbara. And it requires them to take a serious look at themselves. And that is hairy and scary. You know, for me, there is no talk of treaties. There's no talk of reconciliation. It just irritates me around the reconciliation because we've got to talk about racism and how racism dominates Australian life. And if we're not prepared to come to the table, pretty much and set it up like uh, South Africa did with the reconciliation, we're not going to move forward here. And at the moment, it's just Band-Aid stuff. And everybody has a role to play. There's no political party worse than the other. We have 434 Aboriginal deaths in custody in modern times. And there's not one officer charged. And of recent times here in Western Australia, Joyce Clark, you know, eight cops surrounding her and not one rugby tackled her. Instead, they pulled out a a Glock 9mm pistol and shot her dead. You know, not one charged out of 434, prison and and police. That's an international scandal. It's the worst scandal in Australian history right now in the modern day. Where are white Australians confronting white Australians? You know, across Australia, in rural and remote regions where, you know, they'll call you coon, boom and abo straight to your face, where people just think it's okay. But it's never white people uh, confronting white people about their narrative. Which white people need to call out which white people? Poor white people need to call out poor white people. It shouldn't be left to, to Aboriginal people or black people in general worldwide because we're seen as hysterical oh, well, there they go again. They're never satisfied with anything. They're always complaining. No, I think we're calling out fair income serious issues that just not are our issues. They're the wider Australian issue. And it's got to be dealt with. Let me read uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the witness of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So we just thought that would be an appropriate kind of uh, um, peg to put down to, to anchor 
um, this discussion. But Drew, I'll, I'll hand over to you. Yeah, so instead of, um, normally we would ask our guests to um, kind of uh, unpack, well, at least read the verse, but we thought that, Brian, we would start with you to kind of just give us a broad summary um, for our listeners of A Hidden Life. What is, how would you summarize um, the film for people who haven't seen it yet? Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Terrence Malick. I think he's, I think he's simply the great art film director of our time. Uh, I think, I think uh, The Tree of Life is perhaps, you know, one of the greatest presentations of the grand scope of the Christian hope, you know, ever attempted. Uh, and now he's come across with A Hidden Life, where he tells the story of Franz Jägerstatter, which, of course, Father John can tell us much more about than I can. But that's how I was introduced uh, to this hidden life. I, this, this man that lived this uh, life in kind of an obscure Austrian rural village, and at some point has the conviction that to serve in the German military under the, under the uh, Hitler government is simply, you know, contrary to his Christian faith. And he, he refuses to take the oath of allegiance to Hitler and is, of course, immediately arrested and eventually becomes a martyr. Uh, you know, I don't want to necessarily try to tell the whole film, although I could do that, but I don't think we want to take that much time. And, and BZ, how many times have you seen it since it's come out? I, seven or eight. That's amazing. Let's see, I, I saw it first in an art theater in Kansas City, then I saw it on a flight to uh, New Zealand, and then I saw it on a flight to Israel, and I've watched it four or five times in my house. So wow. Wow. I really know it very well. Yeah. Uh, I, I read one, review, one reviewer who said, I, I just don't understand, though, uh, Terrence Malick never tells us where Franz Jägerstatter comes up with this courage to be able to oppose Hitler and refuse to be uh, conscripted and, and willing to become a martyr. And I'm thinking, did you watch the film? <laughs> I, I watched, at one point, I, I went, one of the viewings, I kept track, I kept tallies of every time that a crucifix or the church appear in the background of the scene. Of course, if it's a Terrence Malick movie, it's, it's gorgeous in its cinematography. Mm. But there are over 100 scenes. It's almost mm. absurd. Over 100 wow. scenes in which you see either a crucifix or the church in the background. And the other thing that is so prominent is how often you hear the church bells. Yeah. Uh, the first yeah. time you hear the church bells, it's Franz himself ringing the bell. Of course, this too is a cinematic metaphor that he was the one who was ringing the bell. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you hear the bells ring at significant moments throughout the film. And then, of course, the last time you hear the bells ring, they're tolling for him. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Um, John, so I, I, think, I think from, from, from what I know, and I'll, you know, we'll let Father John weigh in on this, I think it's fairly faithful to the story uh, of Franz Jägerstadter, but... Terrence Malick, being what he is, is not just interested in giving us a documentary. He's yeah. also producing a, uh, you know, a film that is beautiful and also laden with symbol and metaphor. I, in my opinion, I think he pulls it off marvelously. Yeah, me, me too. John, I was just about to tell you that you can't uh, see us, but I have in my hot little hand um, a number of Brian's books, uh, A Farewell to Mars, um, An Evangelical's Pastor's Journey Towards a Biblical the Biblical Gospel of Peace, which um, I think you'd love. Uh, Water to Wine, I've got here, I've just taken off the shelf just a couple. Beauty Will Save the World. But I also have um, a number of books that um, you might be interested in. There's one here called A Persistent Peace. And, I have um, this one. I've read this one, yes. Yeah, this is fantastic. And um, uh, John, uh, Brian has just shared where um, he first encountered, for me, A Persistent Peace. And the same year you also put out... Um, Put Down Your Swords, uh, particularly in Put Down Your Swords, your your chapter on Francesca and Franz uh, Jogenstata um, is exceptional. Like, it, it's just in, in, incredible. But when do you first remember encountering their witness? Well, thanks, Jared, and thank you, um, Brian. Um, 
So I just turned 60. I definitely remember in 1975 hmm. uh, being given a little church pamphlet um, on the life and death of Franz Jägerstatter. That what was, it was called. It was put out by some very, very pious Catholic church group that nobody gets except for little old ladies. Now, I had a wonderful <laughs> grandmother. I used to go and see her. And she's got all these pious Catholic magazines. And she said, oh, this one came in the mail today. It's about a guy who resisted Hitler and was beheaded. I couldn't believe it. I still have it. Wow. I still have it today. Um, it's brilliant, actually. And it was full of like 40 photos. Well, I, well, I carried it with me my whole life. And um, Franz changed my life. I mean, there's no joke, because uh, I, I then went off to Duke in college, and um, I was really obsessed with Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy and their assassinations and, and Franz now, and um, decided I wasn't going to do all the great things I had planned and would become a priest, and then became a peace activist. And I was, a, was in the Jesuit novitiate in the early 80s, and I, I read somewhere in the press that they were going to begin the process of uh, canonizing Franz Jägerstatter and you know you should send a if, does anybody know anybody who who could say anything to send to Rome so I wrote a long letter that Fran, I was a priest because of Franz Jägerstatter mm. well then so then you know I'm with the Barrigans and we're getting arrested and whoa, I think whoa, whoa. We you, you can't come on you had a go at me of dropping greek like and you and just go, you know i was i was just with the barrigans i was just hanging you know with, with phil and daniel in between um you know like why don't you just take a, a moment to uh for those who aren't familiar with um uh the plowshares tradition and um those two great saints of um uh a, a, a american witness uh, who who are these Berrigans that you're name dropping, Father John Deere? Right. So they uh, they were two very famous priests in the '60s, who really were the religious leaders, Christian leaders against the Vietnam War. They burned draft files with homemade napalm. They faced years in prison. Dan went underground. They were in prison. They were on the cover of Time magazine. And later they started the Plowshares Movement. There have been over 100 actions where and I've done one, faced 20 years in prison, where you walk into nuclear weapons plants and hammer on nuclear weapons. So, uh, and Dan and Phil, Phil died in 2002, Dan in 2016, and was very close with both of them. And they're mythic figures in, mm -hmm. in, the, in the church in the United States, but really saints, and I, I figure it'll be canonized someday. But I'm glad you asked me to talk about it because um, I had to have that same, I had to say the same things to Francisca Jägerstatter. And uh, what happened was I was going to, if I can carry on, Jared. Oh, please. Uh, <laughs> I was going to um, live in Ireland on a sabbatical year in Belfast in Northern Ireland in 1997 to 98. And so I thought, oh, great. Well, Austria is on the way to Ireland. I could, I, so I, I uh, had connections with her and uh, wrote her and said, I'm coming to stay for a week. <laughs> uh, I was quite full of myself. I was probably like 27 or whatever. Oh, my God. And I had been to Austria before. I felt very comfortable there. It's the most beautiful place in the world. She's not far from um, uh, Salzburg. But their village is right on the border of Germany, five miles. And five miles away was Hitler's summer home, wow. you know, the eagle's nest. And wow. five miles away was the birthplace and childhood home of Pope Benedict, who beatified hmm. him when no one else would, because he's a very right-wing guy. But he grew up hearing about Jägerstatter, and Pope Benedict was a Nazi for four years. Mm. So um, that was always... A... Anyway, I went to St. Radigan. It's a little village in the western Austria, and I'll never forget it. There's, it's, there's like, uh, maybe now, there's like 100 little suburban houses, and then a couple of blocks down this little road. I mean, it's, there's no highway anywhere. I, I took a, a bus to Ostermeeting and then, you know, 
I walked the last couple of miles to St. Radigan. And um, I kept asking the villagers where the Jägerstatters lived. And there's this lady picking apples from the, the tree in the little front lawn. I walked right up to her and she's eating apples. And I said, pardon me, uh, where are the Jägerstatters? And she stood up. She looked exactly like Georgia O'Keeffe the pictures of the great painter. And she had this very straight sp spine. And she said, I'm Frau Jägerstatter. <laughs> oh, God, it was like one of the greatest moments of my life. And she welcomed me in and cooked dinner for me. And all the kids, the three daughters who are now grown wow. and their family, and they brought in mm -hmm. translators and I stayed for a week. And I, and I remember she loved fine wines and so do I. So we would stay up all night. And um, and I said, and what was he like? And what did he do? And what did you do here? And, you know, and she said, okay, well, and then she went upstairs to under her bed. She had a shoebox with his letters. Mm. And she brought that down and that was overwhelming. Mm. And then she went back upstairs and got the photo album. And um, so I held those and we talked about them for a week. Now, remind, remember, I'm a young priest at the time and a peace activist, and but I'm not a morning person. And then she's at the door at 5 a.m. 5 a.m., mind you. Father John, yes. Mass. Oh. And that's what she did with Franz. She was the sacristan from, like, what, 1930 till 2002. I read that today. And Franz took turns with her, the sacristan. So that's the assistant to the priest. Mm. Well, the, when the priest heard that a young priest was coming from the States, he left to get a little break. So I didn't know I was getting up at five o'clock for what I call midnight mass. And she pulled out these robes that were from the 1800s that Franz would have worked with. And I said mass and there were just a family. And some translators and peace people from Austria came to meet me. Well, it went on like that for a week. I loved the film. Terrence Malick invited me to a premiere because I had helped um, get Franz's collected wow. uh, writings published. And, um, and then Terrence Malick bought the writings. He bought the rights to them. So I've been waiting for this movie for 10 years. Mm. Um, and that happened, the book happened because they announced Franz was being beatified. And so I went back to Austria for a week and I can celebrate at the Mass in the cathedral in Linz with probably a hundred other priests. And <clears throat> the family was there and had a great party afterwards. Um, and Francisca was, she's certainly one of the greatest persons I've ever met. And you, you won't mind me, Jared, name dropping, but to be honest with you, because I've met so many saints, she's the only person I knew who was like Mother Teresa. She had this twinkle in her eye you never seen such devout faith and such seriousness. And she was so funny and she loved wine and she kidded me. She's it. Well, if you're a rough, crazy guy on a motorcycle in 1930 and you fall in love with Francisca, you're going to become a martyr. That's what I always say. <laughs> <laughs> you're There's no other option. <laughs> I'll be quoting that for a while. Wow. I, I, no, I'm, I felt that the minute I met her to this day, by the way, and she wrote me letters till she died. I have a pile mm. of letters from Francisco. But, um, so I went back for the beatification and, you know, she was so happy. But a couple of things, I remember her clearly telling me nobody supported him. If she didn't, no one would have. Their life was in constant danger and she was hated, 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 hated up through the 90s, even when I was there, by most wow. of the villagers. I mean, now think about it. If five Aust okay, Nazis roll into Austria, overnight every male in Austria has to become a Nazi one way or the other and eventually become a Nazi soldier. And, and they're all headed off to the front and killed in Russia. Well, uh, five refused. As far as we can tell, and Franz was one of them, a farmer, and he did it because of his discipleship to the nonviolent Jesus. Well, um, she told me how terrible it was. And then Gordon Zahn, this writer in America, great friend of mine through Pax Christi, he was over there researching a book in 1960. They was going to write about how Germans 
Catholics and Christians so easily became Nazis. Yeah. And he wrote that book, but in the process, he discovered the story of Franz Jägerstatter. So he went to St. Went to St. Radigan, wrote his book there, and that made Franz uh, well-known. So, for example, Thomas Merton, the famous monk and writer, mm. when he held his big peace retreat at Gethsemane in 1964 with the Berrigans and so many others, he gave a whole a day-long retreat on Franz Jägerstatter. I told Francisco all this about Merton, the Berrigans, Dorothy Day, Plowshares Movement. We carry Franz's picture with us. I had Franz's picture on the wall of my jail cell for a year. Mm. You know, by the way, if you put toothpaste behind a postcard, it sticks nicely to a concrete prison wall. So. Um, this is just jail tips for your listeners, Jared. But anyway... Um, the beatification was just terrific, and she was so happy. But what's hard to grasp is five men refuse to kill for Hitler. They're all killed. One of them is going to be a saint and is a saint. And now, in whenever year it was, I'm not good with years, my 2012, let's say, the Catholic Church beatifies Franz in this huge event that was carried live on the state television channel. So, mm -hmm. all, and it was a, the equivalent of our July 4th was the mass in honor of Franz Jägerstatter. The entire country watched it live and 50% of the people all hate Franz to this day because wow. the church is saying all your parents and grandparents were wrong, especially yeah. you Catholics. Right. You all were Nazis and we were wrong too, although the church never admits it was wrong. And, um, and but at least they lifted up um, Franz. And Francisca told me that night, well, I never thought this day was going to happen. I also went while I was in Linz to the places where he went just before he was arrested, where he turned himself in. I went to the room where he was tortured, which is now a computer store. It just looks totally normal. I went to the office where he met with the bishop which is still the bishop's office, and the waiting room, it's in the movie. I sat in the same chair. Franz came out and said to Francisca, they're all scared of following Jesus. And that office is still there, and that's the office that organized his beatification. But Franz spoke with 20 priests, ministers, and several bishops, and all of them said, you have to become a Nazi. That's what the church requires. And this guy said, no, I'm going to follow Jesus. And uh, it's a great, great story. And the film is great. I urge everybody to see it. And it, by the way, it's totally accurate to the great lady I knew and loved. Still love Francisca Yader. That's, she acts like her. And so I think they did a great job. And the story is really good. I could say something about the houses which are not at all like the Eger Satter house, but that's okay. <laughs> Sorry I went on so long, Jared. Well, no, that's good. Can, yeah, can I, can I raise – I have some questions. Um, of course, I love the film, and I basically did a whole sermon on it here recently. Um, and and, and I, soon, you know, I, I celebrate, you know, Franz Jägerstadter, but here's the problem. The church is at the place where it takes a saint – to be able to say that war is incompatible with following Jesus. And you'll have, you know, one in a million that has that kind of heroic courage. Uh, but, you know, if, if, if you have to go it alone and you don't have the church say, no, the waging of war is incompatible with following Jesus, well, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get one in a million. Mm. Um, and, and that's, that's one the depressing in a, one aspect in a of that story. Mm. One so, in a billion. Yeah, yeah, okay, there you go. So, and it shows you the, the, I don't know what, the fallacy of just war theory. I mean, if you ask people, okay, you know, uh, I want to mitigate participation in war, but, you know, and they go all Augustine, and, and they say, okay, there's just war theory. I say, give me an example. They'll say World War II, meaning that that was a just war to wage, you know, as the allies. Well, look, if you can't use just war theory to say, I'm not going to make an oath of allegiance to Hitler and become a Nazi, well, then when does it ever actually help any 
Christian young man to say, I'm not going to go to war. Either yeah. the church has a consistent message that we are to follow the Prince of Peace and waging war is incompatible with following Jesus, or as Father John says, you'll get one in a billion that'll have that kind of heroic courage. Mm. Yeah, they that's incredible. Yeah, so in light of, I mean, as you guys are talking and we're thinking about both the film A Hidden Life and the life of Franz Jagerstadter, and I'm thinking about the ways in which, like what we do with martyrdom stories, right? Mm. And in some ways, I'm curious what both you, Brian, and John think about um, how do we, what, how should we inherit these stories? What should we do with martyrdom stories? Are there troubling ways to receive them? And what, what might be liberating ways to, um, to uphold uh, martyrdom stories? Because there is always the way in which they can be brought into nationalist myths, right? And so I'm mm. curious what you guys think about that. Brian, I don't know if you have any thoughts to start us off on that. Well, as far as I understand it, that that never happened with Franz Jägerstatter. I mean, right, right. I mean, as, as Father John says, even to this day, you'll find half the people in the village still can't quite, you know, say, yeah, but he should have fought for his country. Mm. Um, I think of saints, you know, I'm not a Catholic, so I can say things like these. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a <laughs> hall of fame. And uh, why do you have the Hall of Fame? Well, that, that's, that's where people learn how to do it right. Come Think on, about baseball. Right. You know, I'm, I'm here in Kansas City, and so I grew up a Royals fan, and, you know, and I love George Brett. He goes into the Hall of Fame because, you know, how do you swing a bat? You swing it like George Brett. I mean, he looked good even when he struck out because he had the perfect swing. And so, you know, George <laughs> Brett is in the Hall of Fame, and you tell young people that's how you swing a bat. All right, so we have Franz Jägerstadter going into the Hall of Fame, and we say to young people, okay, that's how you courageously follow Jesus. But I think that, I think that, I don't know if it's a problem with a martyr story. The problem is, is we have one uh, hero, one saint, one exceptional human being, and that can tend to exempt the rest of us. Mm -hmm. So people say, well, yeah, and I'm not a saint for crying out loud. Uh, I mean, I do think their story needs to be told. And I mean, that's why I'm a part of this podcast. And I, I, I'm all for that. But we have to be careful that in canonizing someone's life, we don't say, okay, that's for the rare, exceptional, one in a billion kind of Christian. The rest of us are just going to follow orders and wage war for the Nazis if we have to. So that's kind mm -hmm. of the troubling aspect I see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. John, you want to add anything to that? Well, uh, your question, I think, is something about how do we tell the story of the martyrs. And and I remember as a kid, gosh, was I 15 or 16 years old, being handed this booklet about Franz Jägerstatter. And uh, I knew that was it. I just knew. You look at it, just page through it, and this guy, all he kept talking about was love your enemies. In effect, he's saying, hey, Hitler, I'd love to kill for you. Who wouldn't? But I got this guy. He says, love your enemies, so what can you do? <laughs> and uh, it was very clear that he was a, a really almost perfect disciple of the nonviolent Jesus. And, um, and uh, the word martyr means witness. Yeah. Right. So exactly. I thought, and still do, but when I, that first day, I thought, oh, rats, this is what I'm going to have to try to do with my life. Mm. So the best way to tell the story of the martyrs is to try to, join their lineage and carry on. on the witness, the radical witness to the nonviolent Jesus and announce to the world and the worldly war-making church that Jesus was nonviolent. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to be totally nonviolent. Loving your enemies means you have to oppose every war. And therefore, uh, you know, as I've told the story of Franz my entire life, I've been talking about him. That's my family. And uh, they... Uh, <laughs> But so I tell that story and also say, so we have to carry on the work that Franz started. I mean, he was such an original modern saint. What he did is unheard of. I mean, he had never heard of Gandhi. There was no newspaper out there. There was no Martin Luther King. The church, the purpose of the U.S. bishops was to support all wars. 
That's why they were, that's what happened at the turn of the century with World War One. They, they around the world, the Catholic bishops started to support their militaries. So what he was breaking such new ground, but in other words, he was turning us to the gospel. We have to tell that story and then say to people, therefore, if you're a Christian, if you're Catholic, you cannot join the military, you cannot kill, you cannot build nuclear bombs, and you have to work to resist the culture of violence and death and teach gospel nonviolence. But I still think that the best way to do that is to engage in nonviolent public action, as Jesus did. And I knew at the beginning that uh, as a kid, okay, I'm not going to get beheaded, I'm not going to be crucified, <laughs> but they will put you in jail. I was just in jail two months ago, as I'm sure you all were too, I hope, um, for <laughs> Jane Fonda, I'm name dropping here, and I and others, we shut down the U.S. Capitol at the beginning of the new year on climate change. It was a great yeah. action. It really was. Years. Reverend Barber was there with me, and um, we were jailed all day. And that's that's my Franz uh work, I, you know. And that's the best way to witness him, Ed, so that he would just fit right in with all of that today. And that's the, this is actually the kind of conversation I had with Francisca. And it was, I'm telling you this just because it moves me that mm. and she didn't know anything about all this, because what activists from the States had ever gone there before? Mm. Um, she had met Europeans, but not any American, much less a, a kid like me. And... Um, and I was saying the impact he was having on us as Christians and peace and justice people working for peace, many of us full time, peace and justice in all in all its forms. And she's just astonished. Can I tell one more story about her, Jared, and then I'll be quiet. Oh, please. No, like, uh, so you, I don't know. You know I'm watching so... Drew and I'm watching BZ and we're all leaning in and have the biggest smiles. Um, this is Absolutely. fun for us. Oh, well. The thing is, uh, you know, I'm an organizer at heart. I've always got something up my sleeve. So after my last <laughs> night there, I'm saying, okay, Francisca, this is years of being a Jesuit. I have a plan. I'm going to raise a pile of money. I'm going to fly you to the United States. I'm going to put you on a 20-city speaking tour, and you're going to meet Coretta Scott King and have dinner with Daniel Berrigan and probably meet cardinals and activists and Catholic workers all over the country, New York to LA. She's looking at me utterly horrified. She's never been on a plane in her life. Wow. She's never been outside of St. Radigan in her life, except when wow. Franz and her went uh, to Rome for her, their honeymoon. Or oh, the trip to Berlin. So yeah. I'm, I'm explaining all this. I'm going, it'll be massive press. This is, I'm trying to answer your question. I was going to tell her story in a big way because I loved her. She was like my mother. And um, we are going to get national press. The whole church and the country are going to know about you in France. And you know I, how I talk too much, and I'm going on and on, and it's so great, Jared does this. And it's just, it's just, and we're, we're, um, there are these very fine German wines on our kitchen table. We're sitting there, and her daughters are there, and their husbands, and they're all looking at me just giggling. And there's this long pause. I finally shut up, and I said, "She goes, I would never do such a thing." I said, "You've got to give me one reason why. You can't just say no. You got to give me a reason why." And she leaned forward and whispered in my ear and said, "Because your wine is so bad." Gosh, I remember, I went right home and told Daniel Bergen that, and we laughed about that for years. She was that's a, great. That's an amazing story. And uh, why it's so appropriate that Terence Malick chose um, uh, the title from a T.S. Eliot poem. BZ. Um, uh, George Eliot. Sorry, George. George, thank you. Um, uh, BZ, um, I remember in a conversation we once had before, and I, I asked you, um, how do we balance the, the Thomas Merton um, and the Philip Berrigan? Um, and, and, and they're back and forward about um, uh, Philip Berrigan saying, uh, uh, Jesus wasn't a, a monk, he was an activist, and uh, Merton enc encouraging Berrigan to take the um, in internal journey more seriously. And BZ, you said to me, Jared, 
I'm a pastor in St. Joe's, Missouri. <laughs> My <laughs> congregants haven't read Berrigan or Merton. Um, I think there's something about a, a hidden life and the importance of that, that I, I would oh. love to have you speak to. Well, I mean, I eventually, I can't quite do it yet, but I eventually showed the tree of life in our church on a Sunday night and kind of gave, provided commentary all the way through it. I will do that mm. with a hidden life for our congregation because the, I mean, there's nothing that moves human beings more than the story well told. With yeah. Franz Jägerstatter, you have one of the most inspiring stories of modern Christian history. And with Terrence Malick, you have, you know, one of the finest cinematic storytellers of, mm. of all time. And so, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I'm a pastor. I'm not an activist. I'm a pastor. Um, but um, I am successfully, by the grace of God, turning people in St. Joseph, Missouri, it's as red as it gets, I'm turning them to the way of peace. Hmm. Uh, you, you just do it a lot of storytelling and you, you, you play the Jesus card all day long. You just keep saying, <laughs> yeah, but, but what about Jesus? Yeah, but what did Jesus say? Um, another th thing I, I wanted to say is I think one of the great deficiencies of Protestantism and especially in the evangelical world, and even though on A Farewell to Mars, the publisher coming up with a subtitle calls me an evangelical pastor, the truth is I have never called myself an evangelical mm. at any point in my life. I was yeah. a Jesus freak, a charismatic, and then whatever I am now, uh, <laughs> but never an evangelical. But I know the evangelical world very well, and we don't have martyrs. Uh, the closest thing an evangelical has to a martyr is Diedrich Bonhoeffer, and even then they hijack it and turn it into a story that he was actually an assassin trying to kill Hitler, which is a revisionist storytelling. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and martyrdom almost, for most American evangelicals, just seems like it's off the table. And I try to teach people, look, in your baptism, you are signing up for Come martyrdom. On. Yes, you are man. saying, I am already buried with Christ. My life is already hidden with God in Christ. And so I'm going to overcome by the blood of the Lamb, the word of the, my testimony, and I will not love my life even unto death. Mm. That's standard fare for Christians, although it hasn't been in the evangelical world. And so I think we need the stories of the martyrs. We need to hear that, and we need to understand that, if we're going to be faithful to Christ, we have to be, and this, this is the most radical way to say it, we have to be willing for our children to be martyrs, because that, that's how people will get around it. When I began to talk about a hidden life on social media, some of the pushback I got was, uh, yeah, but what about his children? You know, for the sake of his children, he should have just, you know, go ahead and, you know, signed up and, and, and made the oath. And, you know, it doesn't matter what you say, you know, you can have your own meaning in your heart. What about the children? And that was before I really knew uh, the story after the, the film ends that, that uh, his wife and his family, you, you know, they make it, they, they're as proud as they can be that they are uh, the wife and the daughter of a beatified uh, martyr. Um, but but that that's the move that so many American evangelicals take. Yeah, but but the the, the highest calling is we've, we've got to take care of our family. Of course, Jesus tells us, if you love your father, your mother, your family more than me, you're not worthy of me. Be, be, I think Jesus says that because he knows that can be manipulated. And once you say, okay, I will deviate from my allegiance to Christ for the sake of family or nation, well, then you'll do it every day, all day long. Mm. And then you end up just serving in the empire and, and find yourself incapable of faithfully following Christ. Yeah. Wow. That's good. Um, Drew and I are, are currently um, using his uh, incredible text, The Trouble I've Seen, changing the way the church views racism to run uh, anti-racism and discipleship training. And we've been contacted by so many people who are part of uh, that community over a hundred people who have signed up for that nine week course, um, who are white, who are feeling the tension with their families in this moment. Um, like yeah. uh, on, yeah. on the streets of, um, uh, your cities in, in the U S um, 
uh, the cry is coming up from the blood that lies on those streets and, and people are joining that cry. The, the real tension that are around dinner tables um, that, that are um, every time calling home to see if mum and dad are doing okay uh, during the um, lockdown because of the pandemic, these are real tensions that people are feeling, uh, wanting um, uh, to join that great cloud of witnesses, but at the same time feeling the pull of family dynamics. Um, John and BZ, um, pastorally, what word would you have for people who um, are feeling um, just, you know, in, in, in tears, uh, wanting to join in what the Holy Spirit is doing in this moment in history, but at the same time uh, wanting to honour their family? Um, how have you walked um, those tensions? Um, what pastoral word would you have for people walking in those tensions now? Uh, go ahead. Or do you want me to go? Oh, either or, John. You go ahead then. Okay. Um, I don't have in. this comes up all the time. I deal with it all the time. And I don't have any clever, witty thing to say other than you just have to keep the conversation about Jesus. Mm. And you have to let Jesus, not in an act of one-upsmanship, but you have to just, just gently but persistently quote Jesus. Mm. And, and, and lean into those words and read and do it in the form of a question. Yeah, but what do you think Jesus would mean when he says this? Or what do you think yeah, he does mean good. when he says that? Or, or I hear that, I understand that, I feel that, but what do you think Jesus would say? And I, I think you just have to let Jesus do the heavy lifting. <laughs> and he's, it's why, it's why I, I know that Father John, I think, is probably extremely comfortable with calling himself a pacifist. I don't call myself a pacifist. I call myself a Christian. Because, because what happens is then it becomes, oh, you're one of those. Uh, what I say is um, pacifism is a position on nonviolence that people can adopt apart from Jesus Christ, and people have. And that may be admirable, but it's not me. If I'm committed to, committed to the way of nonviolence, and I am, it's solely and entirely because I see that Jesus gives me no choice. Mm. And so uh, I think I was willing I was quite comfortable to be a, a, a violent son of a gun <laughs> and to endorse violence until I saw that it was, it, my Lord says, no, Brian, you can't do that. Mm. And so for me, um, I, don't, I don't have an ethical position of nonviolence so much as I just have a commitment to try to faithfully follow Jesus. So you know that, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm, I'm saying Jesus over and over and over. Uh, I, I don't think you're going to persuade people by trying to win an argument, by berating them, by, you know, trying to indicate somehow that they're, they're uh, you know, just a daft redneck. Uh, you're, you're going to have to allow Jesus to do that and then give some space for that to happen. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, John, I'm, I'm aware you wrote an amazing book on the questions of Jesus and that our Lord asks over 300 questions um, other than as BZ put it playing the Jesus card and uh, framing things as questions that lead people to to ask questions um, what would you offer people at this moment who are wanting to join in what the Holy Spirit is doing on the streets of the city uh, crying out for a, a healing justice but feeling those tensions within their own family well I think you can't claim to be a follower of Jesus if you're not working Publicly, um, I don't say politically, I said publicly for an end mm. to war, racism, greed, poverty, nuclear weapons, environmental destruction, Amen. and confronting the state and mm. the empire. Jesus was killed. And in terms of kids, I, I always I told thousands of parents, what will happen to your kids if you're not involved in the yeah, grassroots right. movement like Jesus? And uh, in fact, I'm friends with Franz Jägerstatter's daughters. They're alive and well. They're old ladies in their 70s, and they're great. They're a lot of fun. And Philip Berrigan's three kids and their grandkids are doing great. And their mother, Liz, in her 80s, about just turned 80, is about to go off to prison again. She's going to be sentenced Monday. She's this been in prison for a while. Year. Yeah. So um, that's what the Berrigans always said, and I heard, and so I met. A thousand young couples, Christians, who raise their kids to be kind, loving, 
welcoming, nonviolent, gentle, uh, who know the story of Jesus. And since they were in the womb, they've been marching. They've mm. been going to anti-war protests, anti-racism events, and that's a normal new way of life for the Christian mm. in this terrible moment we're living through. Christians need to be, like Franz, publicly witnessing against war and racism and poverty and greed, environmental destruction, and for the coming of, of God's reign of peace on earth, a new culture of nonviolence, we call it. Um, and I see, I see people beginning to get that and do that, and I know many, many. Um, and I see those who are not and live in fear and watch TV, not involved in the movement, and thinking they're nice and peaceful and prayerful and quiet, full of, full of ever more fear yeah. and, um, and being quite complicit with the culture of violence. And we'd all make good Nazis that way. You know, good Christians going to church, and that's what happened in the 30s and 40s, and we don't want to do that. That's certainly what's happening in America right now, and everybody's got to get going. And change only happens through bottom-up people power grassroots movements from Jesus, Luke 10, you know, forming a movement, sending the 72 on ahead, going to Jerusalem, where he does civil disobedience, where he's killed— to Martin Luther King, you know, we have to be part of that, that march to our capitals as well. Mm. And that's, we need to raise a new generation. If I could just end with one other thought, I was going back and thinking what you asked about the word sanctity or saints and why Franz Jägerstetter is so different in my opinion, mm. is he has uh, reclaimed the model of the early church where everyone for the first three centuries, was nonviolent. And pretty much, if you said our guy is king, therefore Caesar's not king, and I can't join your army, you got beheaded. Well, Franz has shown us the future of, you know, your Merton Philip Berrigan question, contemplation, mm -hmm. prayer, sanctity, whatever you want to call it. And I think the future is that all prayer, contemplation, and sanctity has to be dangerous. Yeah, that's that it. we're looking at a new kind of dangerous yeah. mysticism where your prayer life and there your normal, ordinary standing up publicly for justice and peace and creation is a threat to the culture of violence and death. And if you're if you are not in trouble with the state these days, then you are not following Jesus. We have to always be in trouble. And that's why you need God more than ever. And yeah. but this is this is so helpful. And um, you know uh, what Terence didn't put in the mat in the movie was I don't know if you remember the story. An hour before he was beheaded, the priest came in to see him, see Franz, mm. and the priest lived up into the 1970s. So the story is widely told, and that's what you do as a Catholic. You see your priest before you die, and he wanted to read a long thing to to Franz, and Franz said. Uh, no, I'm okay. Uh, you can go. Thank you so much. I am in total, per my heart is in perfect unity with the heart of Jesus. Mm. Now, I don't know many people who said that. Certainly Mother Teresa never said that. Dr. That's King right. wouldn't say that. Mm. Um, and uh, this is a real, this is a, a dangerous kind of a sanctity where yeah. Hitler was so furious they had to bring him to Berlin to, to try Franz in Hitler's personal high court. Because, what? There's some farmer who won't do this? I got every <laughs> bishop and cardinal doing it. You know, yeah. anyway, I could go on and on. Thanks. No, it's it's really powerful. And I think of um, the story that um, uh, you tell, John, about the dream that he had of yeah, uh, right. the, the train traveling. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you want to yeah. um, mention that story? Because I think of, um, uh, like, uh, I can see you and, and BZ enjoying fine wine, talking well into the night. Um, and and uh, one of the parallels is that I've so appreciated and been given permission by Brian to um, pay attention to my dreams as a way that God speaks. And he has these wonderful stories that I think are in water to wine. Is that right, BZ? Yeah. Um, uh, about... Um, uh, Joshua Abraham Heschel 
um, and Abraham Joshua Heschel and um, uh, Karl Barth and coming to him in dreams. But th this story um, of Franz Jürgenstader and the dream that he had, um, and Drew and I were talking beforehand about how his, his willingness to actually challenge the priesthood, even those who were, um, uh, he was drawing inspiration from, and, um, and, and yet priests who did go to jail um, told him things like, yes, but your mother has cancer, uh, you have a wife, you have young children. And he continued to push back and say, no, 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 this is what we're all called to. John, would you tell the story of, of that dream? Yeah, it was really a nightmare. And um, he mm. lived in this very idyllic countryside, remember? He was a farmer. And that's actually what shocked me most about Hidden Life. I forgot that. You know, huh. the movie is really like being in a monastery. It's a contemplative, quiet mm, yeah. movie. Well, that yeah. was, boy, that guy really got Franz correct because he lived in the middle of the outskirts of nowhere. And um, there's no news. There's no radio. There's nothing. And, you know, and yet he had the courage to take this step. So he had a very peaceful life. He marries Francisca. And, I mean, it's really one of the great love stories of all time. I mean, they were just in ecstasy and mass every day and working in the fields and praying on and off all day. And the cellmates later said Franz prayed all day in the cell, like 12 hours. That's all he did wow. um, before he was killed. So he had a peaceful life, but it was early on, like 1937, he woke Francisca up, practically screaming in the middle of the night, covered in sweat. I had this terrible nightmare. I'm stepping on this massive um, wooden platform of this big train station, and millions of people are running to catch this train, and here comes the train, and the train goes on forever, and it's gold. And it's fabulous. And everybody, everybody, including politicians, priests, friends, family, everybody's rushing, little kids. They're all getting on the train. And this voice came from the sky like thunder and said, this train is going to hell. And Franz knew immediately it meant Nazis. Wow. And Nazism and nationalism. And that's when he woke up. And Francisca never forgot it. And Gordon Zahn wrote about it. But as you may have seen in the collected writings of Francis, Franz Jägerstatter, which you can get from Orvis' book, it's just called Franz Jägerstatter Lettings and Letters and Writings from Prison. And, and John, before we forget, um, thank you. I know how you advocated and organised and uh, lobbied for that to happen. That's been a gift to the world. Thank you so much. Well, it's just uh, thank you. But it was Robert Olsberg and... Erna Putz, she edited it. She's actually the translator who helped yeah. host me. Great people, but it was, it's all Francisca. It's just love for her. Hmm. But anyway, he wrote about a two or three page account of the dream, which you can read in the book. And it's terrifying. Hmm. And then he, he unpacks it and says, this is what's happening. Everybody in Germany and Austria. And you know, Pretty much everybody, except for Jewish people, pretty much everybody cheered Hitler as he came in. My friend is, I don't know if you know the great Austrian activist, Hildegard Gossmeyer, who's in her 90s now. She was nominated many times for the Nobel, Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. She saw Hitler ride by in Vienna when she was eight years old, and she felt the presence of death. And wow. all of Vienna was there to greet him. Everybody in Austria loved Hitler. And so don't be fooled now with the lie that, oh, you know, we really weren't Nazis. We just went along with it, which is kind of what Pope Benedict says. That everybody loved the Nazis, the Germans, Catholics, by and large, people went ahead. And Franz is saying, get off that train. Don't board that train. The train is going to hell. Lose your life if necessary to save it and help one another get on, not get on that train. Now, what you may not remember, Jared, but I, I wrote in that book, after having had so many retreats and discussed this, I remember when I met you, Jared, in, in my tour of Australia, hmm. was it 2008, talking about Franz Jägerstatter. Yeah. My talks, everywhere I went. And um, saying the dream 
Franz was wrong about the dream. How about that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's it's all war and and nationalism and racism and militarism. We're all getting on that train, and that train is going to hell. And we all have to help each other not get on the train of war and racism and greed and environmental destruction and nationalism and patriotism and this insanity of the churches going along with their country, Mm. especially right now. We should be going along with the reign of God. Mm. Um, So I think the dream, because France is such a, is one of the greatest figures in Christian history, in my opinion, that the dream is very, the nightmare is very important warning. Uh, You know, God speaking through his prophet uh, to all of us, you know, not to get on the train of the culture of violence. If you, you know, the viewer who watches A Hidden Life at All Thoughtfully cannot escape from drawing parallels between Germany, 1930s, America, and the present moment. Wow. Remember, the film actually opens with a series of newsreels from the 30s with Hitler before adoring masses. And there's no, there's no commentary, there's no dialogue. You just see about, I don't know, one or two minutes of the euphoria that were generated among the, gen- the German people when Hitler would speak and appear. And then the movie actually begins. It cuts away to a scene of Franz and Francesca mowing hay with the church in the background and, and the beautiful setting and, and the story is being told. And I think I'm going to watch that movie again tonight. <laughs> I'm so inspired after hearing Father John tell these stories. I, I just, I think I'm going to have to watch it again tonight. <laughs> no, but I think what you're saying, I mean, it's, I, I mean, that was, so this story is new to me and Franz Jagastada's story is new to me. So when I watched this movie in preparation for our conversation, it struck me immediately, right? The parallels. And it immediately made me think about the ways in which um, discipleship to Jesus demands a kind of non-cooperation that is, there's some social cost to it, right? And I think about That's it right. particularly as, as a professor of students, right? In, in the college setting where I see students all the time, they begin to start grappling. And then, I mean, sometimes they'll even vocalize and say, but, you know, my parents or my community or my church family. And so the, it's scary to, to break out of that. It's, scary, it's powerful. And so then I think about the movie then, these scenes, which often don't even have much dialogue, but just like, you know, Francisca in the village and the hostility that, that she's, the way that they're interacting and moving yeah. around one another, right? Um, it's, which is pretty powerful because you... The, the bodily language is mm-hmm. being expressed very clearly more than probably words can even express at that moment. Um, and it, it does invite you to um, wrestle with, you know, am I willing to take up uh, non-cooperation in the way of Jesus in a way that accepts the consequences? I think one of the most brilliant things that Malik does in that movie is he, he draws the viewer into feeling sympathy for mm-hmm. Uh, the people that are opposing what Franz is advocating for. Yeah. And I, they are slowly drawn into they're on the side of the villagers and then suddenly realize, my God, I'm supporting Nazis. Yeah. I, yeah. I think, yeah, you that's know, that, that's, that's that brilliant. brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And even just and, the and historical he, reality. He, he does that by the way he sometimes, most of the time, the dialogue is in English. Mm. And, and, Right. But it, but then occasionally it'll jump back, back right. and be in, in German with subtitles, and you go, oh, yeah, I forgot. Right. Uh, these are not Americans. These are Nazis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm not sure what the it, difference it, it, is at this point. Yeah. The real question about all of this, I think, is what does it mean to carry the cross? And that's what right. Franz reminds us. If right. you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus who's totally nonviolent, who carries the cross, and... Um, remember that theologian wrote that the cross is not a hangnail, it's not a flat tire, it's not mm-hmm. a bad mother-in-law, it's not having a difficult boss, it's nonviolent resistance to the state, which is mm-hmm. killing Christ all around the world. Yeah. And if you are not engaged in some kind of nonviolent resistance to the state, you're not carrying the cross, much less following Jesus. Ooh. But Jesus said, and Franz decided, 
do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You can do this. We can do this, and we can make a difference. Yeah. You know, as the early Christian church disarmed, and as all the movements, the abolitionists, the suffragists, civil rights movements, the environmental movement, those movements, I think, are Jesus movements that are making difference in the world today. Mm. So uh, we want to be, we got to refigure how to um, have some kind of cause for our active public nonviolence. Um, we're not going to get beheaded. But, yeah, people are going to get real upset, starting with their families. And now you get to be nonviolent hmm. and loving and kind and, see, <laughs> and forgive. Those now you get enemies this that you can love. <laughs> this is the whole point. And I last thought, and this is what got me in 1975, because I was obsessed with death after the assassination of Martin Luther King. You're all going to die anyway. Yeah. And we're going to need Jesus. <laughs> and... Uh, He's going to say, so what'd you do? <laughs> all those people, people met, saw Franz up there in heaven and regretted it. We don't want to regret it for eternity. I'm not judging them. I'm saying we, we have a gift that Franz didn't have. Mm. We have the example of Franz Jagerstadter, not to mention Dr. King and Romero and Dorothy mm. Day and so many other great folk. Mm. But... Um, that 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 question doesn't work anymore. When billions of people are suffering in poverty, you know, when we, we had 10,000 people arrested in the United States last week protesting this insane racism and this sociopath who's a tyrant in the White House, mm. and we have nuclear war, war and environmental destruction threatening the whole planet, If you, you've got to get involved. And I don't see, uh, yeah, people are going to get ex upset. <laughs> they killed Jesus. It's <laughs> time to stand up and be mature Christians and be nonviolent and gentle. I always say you don't have to get in fights with your family. You just have to keep going out and joining the demonstration. And if there isn't one near you, organize one. Mm. And if that doesn't work, go on TV. Start giving lectures about the need to end racism, war, poverty, nuclear weapons, environmental destruction. That's the Christian prophetic role. No, that's the Christian role. Mm. And that's my speech, and I'm sticking to it, Jared. <laughs> and, and we love you for it, John. I, I'm so aware, though, that um, often we miss the, the parallels, that um, part of the reason why um, uh, Christians, both Catholic and Protestant, supported the rise of Hitler is because Germany was known as um, uh, one of the most um, sexually permissive uh, places in Europe um, in the 19th twenties, nineteen thirties, and here was somebody who was talking about family values, returning to family, and we, we forget that part of part of um, Hitler's whole um, and and the reason why it appealed um, uh, to so many Christians is that um, a part of the reason why uh, gay and lesbian people also were were sent to um, the, the the gas chambers was this whole thing about uh, a personal purity. Um, and uh, uh, idealization of the family um, uh, that had little to do with the realities of what is fair and just and even humane in larger society. Franz was the only one in his little village when Austria, 96% of Austrians voted in the referendum um, uh, to uh, allow the Germans to come in. And yes, that was the reality of people feeling scared and their jobs and their livelihoods and putting food on the table and all that reality. But the, the incredible wave that he stood against, this tsunami of, of, of fear and um, complicity um, is it's just astronomical. Like it, it's just hard to understand that kind of individual courage in the midst of all of that. But the same thing is happening, certainly here in America, but I think the whole world is just to continue your point. And you can't, you go, oh, no, it can't be that bad. Noam Chomsky said the other day, the Republican Party is much more dangerous than the Nazis. It's a very powerful wow. prophetic statement. And for Chomsky as a Jew as well, um, uh, as and Jew, as a right, historian, yeah. like to make that yeah, comment. He, he's saying... Um, the Nazis just wanted to exterminate all the Jews. The Republicans are willing to exterminate the human race on the planet. And you go, oh, no, come on. That's over it's absolutely true. This is a neo-fascism that is totally destroying Mother Earth, the creatures at an unprecedented rate. 
The 1% have never been richer in history. It's way beyond the Roman Empire, way beyond what Hitler could ever imagine. And, um, you know, we see signs of it in the police brutality and, and the mass incarceration. But it's really the whole planet is now at stake, like mm-hmm. never before. Mm-hmm. And um, so we have to break with all of that. And publicly, in every form of way, especially to follow Jesus, and and um, but to stand up and get ready to take some hits. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, Dorothy Day said, founder of Catholic Worker, the measure of your discipleship is how much trouble you're in with your state. <laughs> yeah, That's a good note to end on. Yeah, that, totally. And so I hope you're all in a lot of trouble. <laughs> We're working on it, Father John. Your encouragement Always helps. On it. That's right. <laughs> Good. Well, we want to thank you both for your generosity. Um, uh, John, uh, you can't see us, but for those who watch the video instead of merely listen, um, I'm in my office, so I'm surrounded by a, a cloud of witnesses on the back wall, and as well as Sojourner Truth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Daniel Berrigan and um, uh, Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and of course our, our Lord himself. There is a photo there of John Deere. I don't know if you can see that. I, see and, yep. yeah, I, um, I hope uh, it's a good picture. Here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a black and white one. It's a, it's a good one. So um, you, silly. as I um, uh, pray each day, I am aware of, of your prayers um, uh, BZ, um, you and Perry mean the world to me. So thankful for your friendship, your witness, and it's a real joy for Drew and I to have you both on at um, this this time. And, and absolutely, this time. my pleasure. I could sit here and listen to these stories that Father John is telling about Jägerstadter all night long. I'm just absolutely fascinated by this. Well, yeah. I, I look forward to a time when. Uh, um, we can travel again and actually um, I really do yeah. all join up together because I, I look forward to let's see if we can get some fine German wine that's and what I was thinking I, <laughs> Drew I mean I'm already getting haircuts now so the Nazarite vow is out um, so maybe I'll, I'll break my communion only uh, kind of rule or we could just have Father John like consummate it and um, then, then we can all uh, break bread together but this has been this has been incredible and really helpful for so many Thank you. Yep. Thank you both for Thank you. It's a pleasure. And all the best. And God bless you all. You too, John. Take care. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.